is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing Conan the Barbarian. Know, O oh Prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the gleaming cities and the years of the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamt of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world like blue mantles beneath the stars. Nemedia, Ophir, Brythunia, Hyperborea, Zamora with its dark-haired women and towers of spider-haunted mystery, Zingara with its chivalry, Koth that bordered on the pastoral lands of Shem, Stygia with its shadow-guarded tombs, Hyrcania, whose riders wore steel and silk and gold. But the proudest kingdom of the world was Aquilonia, reigning supreme in the dreaming west. Hither came Conan, the Sumerian, black-haired, sullen-eyed, sword in hand, a thief, a reaver, a slayer, with gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth, to tread the jeweled thrones of the earth under his sandaled feet. The Numidian Chronicles. So goes the prologue to The Phoenix on the Sword, a short story published by American writer Robert E. Howard in the December 1932 issue of Weird Tales. The story featured a king named Conan, a barbarian improbably seated upon the throne of an ancient kingdom called Aquilonia and who must thwart an attempt to usurp him in the dead of night. The story landed like a meteor among the readership of Weird Tales. Howard's breathless, urgent, and descriptive prose spoke of a pseudo-historical world called the Hyborian Age that was at once both familiar and strange to those visiting it for the first time. Now, by 1932, Howard had been writing pulp fiction prolifically for some time, but it was the character of Conan that really caught fire. And from then on out, Howard wrote about the character regularly, chronicling the barbarian's many adventures as he fought and looted and wenched his way across Hyboria. He faced thieves, mercenaries, and raiders, the corrupt and villainously decadent magistrates, priests, and wizards of Hyborian civilization, and the nameless eldritch horrors from places mortal man is not meant to see. So unique and powerful was Howard's style, tone, direction, and vision that he single-handedly launched what would later become known as the swords and sorcery subgenre of fantasy. Now, Howard only published 18 Conan stories before he took his own life in 1936. Upon hearing that his mother, whose caretaker he was, had entered a coma, she would not exit. Howard's tragic end cut short a burgeoning career that, judging by later Conan works, such as The Hour of the Dragon and Red Nails, was only just beginning to kick into high gear. Incredibly, after an initial outpouring of sympathy and support from Howard's many fans and colleagues, Conan slipped from memory, in large part because of the low literary reputation of the pulp magazines where Conan was originally published, such as The Way of All Kings. But years later, Conan would be rediscovered, and the Sumerian has endured across the decades to become one of the world's most widely read fantasy heroes. Howard's Conan stories have been reprinted in book form by no less than nine different publishers. Later authors have carried Howard's torch and supplemented his work with at least 50 additional Conan novels and dozens of new short stories. Meanwhile, in the 1970s, Conan was licensed by Marvel Comics and guided by writer Roy Thomas, the character became so popular that he essentially saved Marvel from collapse during hard financial times and carried Conan's popularity to a new generation of fans. Conan has been adapted for the screen three times in role-playing games and video games and has become an indelible part of Western pop culture. He is synonymous with savage nobility, 
the strength and power of humanity unbound and a symbol of a life bursting with fire and courage. Conan's world may have ended long before ours ever began, but we shall always hear the echoes of his life, his world, and his exploits ringing in our ears, if only we let ourselves hear them. But the road is long and the day grows short, so let us tarry no longer. With me today, by way of Zamora, city of thieves, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. By way of Aquilonia in the Dreaming West, Tom Hespos. Prom cares not. By way of Hyperborea and its teeming secrets, Joe Pace. What daring, what outrageousness, what insolence, what arrogance. I salute you. That guy knows what's best in life. <laughs> he does. Everyone, welcome. I'm so excited to get going on this. Oh my gosh, I cannot tell you. We're going to start with Tom. Tom, take us through your moment of truth because you kind of begin at the beginning. And I think what you'd like to talk about today is really where we should properly start. So take us through your moment of truth, which is really, you know, your favorite iteration of Conan. Walk us through it. Walk us through what you love most about it and how it kind of opens the door for you for Conan in general. Well, sure. I mean, my moment of truth comes from one of the original, you know, Robert E. Howard Conan stories that was published in Weird Tales. Before I get there, like, I've got to give props because for years and years and years, the only Conan I really knew was, you know, like my dad in 1982 said, you know, like one afternoon, oh, let's, you know, jump in the car. We'll go see Conar the Barbarian. I think I told you that story before. Like, he had no idea of, like, what the history was. It was just this movie that was out at the time, you know. He took me to the movies, and, you know, we had an awkward little, um, you know, moment with the vampire sex scene, but, um, you know, we had fun. Yeah, the palace. was all kinds, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's... He didn't know, you know, he certainly didn't know anything about Conan or, you know, Robert E. Howard for that matter. It was like a- I'm approves of Tom's father. Anyway. <laughs> well, you know, that was my Conan, aside from like a couple of issues of, you know, Savage Sword that he got me one time when I was sick. You know, he didn't know what I was reading in terms of comic books. So he just, you know, went to the drugstore and scooped up a bunch of issues. And I still have those issues. And, uh, you know, the art just blew me away. But like, I really had no idea that there was this, you know, rich history of the pulps and everything with Conan until you guys told me about it. And I had no idea. (laughs) And, you know, that led to this wonderful rabbit hole that I fell down of, you know, uh, that ended up actually with me collecting like physical issues of old, you know, weird tales to try and get, you know, a lot of the stuff that Howard wrote for it. And, you know, but like, that's all, you know, thanks to you guys cluing me in on this universe. So, you know, thank you for that. <laughs> and you are very welcome, man. <laughs> you know, one of the first things I did was I scooped up that big omnibus that had all the weird tale stories in it. My moment of truth, I think, is is from one of those stories. And it's like one of the stories that to me is just like quintessentially Conan. And, and that's Queen of the Black Coast. Yeah. And, you know, yes. I love it yes. so much because like... It, it just starts Mitra, it gets, fine right into, <laughs> it gets you right into like the essence of conan right away yeah. he, he like he the story starts with him landing a black stallion on the deck of this merchant ship doing like kind of the indiana jones thing yeah. like go 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 get out of here because yeah. And like we very quickly learned that the reason he's being chased is because he got called into court you know, after a night of drinking and, uh, you know, was he had witnessed a murder, give up, you know, his, uh, <laughs> his, his friends. It. 
<laughs> Ray Lewis style witnessing a murder. Yeah. And this is so Conan. It, it just he says to you know the <laughs> judge, I'm not giving up my friend. And the judge says to him, Well, you know, we'll throw you in jail until you do. And like Conan just has this like moment of dissonance with that. And he's like, But but I said no. <laughs> did, did you and, did you not get that? Yeah, that I said no, and then that—that's like an honor thing, and I'm not. So he ends up splitting the judge's skull in two, and (laughs) jumping on you know the best-looking horse in the back of the place, and taking off, and lands on the deck of this merchant ship. It's a great story that's got basically like two parts to it. He befriends the merchant whose ship he landed on. What begins the second part of that story is that merchant ship being attacked, and almost everybody except Conan being killed by Baylit, I guess is how you pronounce it. I, you know, yeah. The Queen of the Black Coast and her group of pirates. And the second half of this story has them like going up a river to a forbidden city. It goes all Lovecraft on you, quite frankly, for a little yeah. bit. Uh, but like- Not that there's know, anything wrong with that. <laughs> no. <laughs> delivers, you know, some, some great like quintessential Conan moments, which are yeah. this guy who is just, he's such an indomitable will. He has seen some truly Lovecraftian stuff in his time, but he never lets go of his sword. And he he, he hates, you know, the old sorcery aspect of the sword and sorcerer thing. He always just makes his way with steel and he never turns his back on that. And it's pretty much like what gets him out of this. I mean, yeah, there's some supernatural stuff going on. Like Baylet comes back to life and, you know, saves him as he's pinned under a column from this monstrosity. You know, in the end, it's like him just sticking to his sword and, uh, you know, trusting in his humanity and his might that brings him through a lot of it. I just think that is just so quintessentially Conan. And it's one of the reasons why I love the story. That's definitely a moment of truth. <laughs> the great thing about Queen of the Black Coast is that it's a story you can read in one sitting. Oh, yeah. Howard admitted that he tried to tease stories out because he was getting paid by the word, <laughs> you know, as, as was the case back in the pulps. But even still, there's not a lot of fat on Queen of the Black Coast. I mean, I no. mean, it's just this, it's just this lean, it gets into things, it starts in media res, you know, and just goes and it never quite lets up. Even when there's like that second act, Conan and Bellet fall into bed pretty hard. You know, they're like, <laughs> you know, he shows up and she's like, now that is a man. <laughs> it's, it's right? What a man, what a man, what like, a man, what a man, yeah. man. Yeah, pretty much. Oh boy. She's been like, you know, going at it and killing everybody in this crew and, you know, the, the, the merchant ship. And yeah, like, she's like, just like sees him in action. Just, whoa, whoa, full yeah. stop. Everybody, everybody wait a minute. Okay. You gotta get the me queen, one of those. She thirsty yeah. yeah the queen is thirsty that's a tall glass of water we gotta retire to bed chambers right now i mean you know, they carry that forward though by the end of the story spoilers when Bellet she doesn't make it conan actually sends her off with a viking funeral he actually like puts her and all the loot on the boat and burns it it's kind of this bittersweet end like you know it's like conan doesn't catch feelings for anybody really but he probably came closest to catching feelings for her oh he and- loved her well, let's, yeah, yeah. let's let's be honest. You know, being a consort of Conan was not strong job security. <laughs> it's right? not, like a, like, not like a career move, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Although you know. Conan, he is a faithful man. If he's with you, he's with you. He's James Bond. He's not. He's with you, and then like, oh wait, I'm not in that town anymore. <laughs> there, right. there, there, there is that but yeah, there is the know, break yeah. you know yeah. you know he left <laughs> yeah. but, but one of the things i love about queen of the black coast though, is that it does involve it's not just like there's so many great stories that involve him you know rebelling and just you know carousing and 
you know, swashbuckling. But this one actually has like a, a an honest to goodness relationship in it. It's a very Conan style relationship, <laughs> you know. It actually adds a dimension to the story that you don't always get in other in other great Conan stories, and there are many of them, you know. Well, I mean, I think it's been well established in the Howard stories. My favorite of the of the Howard over is the Frost Giant's daughter. Because we get Conan, oh, man. You know, he's, he's so good. Here he is after oh, the absolutely. after the battle, and he sees this. He thinks he's hallucinating, and he doesn't care. He's going to chase this female form across the wastes, <laughs> and, and he's he's so angry that like it, like you know it's a trap, and she's like luring him yeah. in. And but there's so much quintessential Conan there. The fact that he's the only survivor of this massive battle, and even though he's exhausted, he's able to like run for hours to chase this thing because he wants to. Like if Conan wants something. Nothing's yeah. gonna, nothing's gonna stop it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the, that's the elemental nature of him. Like he he is so unfiltered. Nothing corrupts his drive, which I think is and just really... indomitable. I mean, it just yeah. like I mean, he he he's you know will made flesh. Yeah, yeah. Chris, do you have a particular favorite amongst the original pulp stories? Both of those are are among my favorites. Red Nails is oh, red unreal. Red Nails uh, is so good. Phoenix and the Sword. The Phoenix and the Sword, Phoenix is, the sword is good. It's yep. incredible in that, you know, you never really think that Conan started as king. Yeah, I know. That, like, that was the first, yeah. I don't know. I, I, just, I that, that was a, a, a killer, killer, killer short story. I mean, oh my gosh. It, yeah. It's just, it, it's tense. It reads like any modern thriller, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, you know, there's an economy there. I adored Phoenix on the Sword. It just blew me away. I never read any of these until this episode came in planning, and we said we're going to do Conan. I said I got to go read the original Howard stuff. And Phoenix and the Sword is the first one in the collection that I have, and so that yeah. was the first Howard. And as soon as I opened it, I said, "This guy, he doesn't just throw in a bunch of one-syllable, four-letter words. This guy is, you know, every word is. I think some of them he made up. I don't know. I mean, like, you know." I didn't know yeah. you could. I, I didn't know that you could take that word and make it into an adjective. But yeah, there it is, and and it, the you know the prose is is so purple that it's almost black, and it's just he just he he keeps it wave after wave of sentence yeah. after sentence of description, and and it's you're absolutely immersed in the world that he's building. Yeah, and it is every bit as real a world as Tolkien's. Yeah, and oh, it's yeah. But it's just it's so overwrought. Every moment is yeah. is just, I mean, it's palpable. You can taste it on your tongue as you're reading it. And I mean, as a writer, I'm looking at it going, it would never occur to me to put that string of words together <laughs> like that. And it doesn't even quite work yeah. and yet. And yet it, and yet. it together yeah. makes this, this wonderful experience. Well, Howard was, I think, largely self-taught. Like he didn't really have much of an academic pedigree. And it kind of shows like he just sort of figured out and just hacked his way through this literary wilderness on his own and figured out what worked and what didn't, judging by what stories got rejected or what editorial feedback he got from Weird Tales, right? So Weird Tales was his college. That's where he kind of grew up as a writer and figured out what would happen and, and what couldn't. He had a ferocious appetite for reading himself. So he kind of lived by that first rule of writing, which is read a lot. And he did. My understanding was that he actually wanted to write historical fiction, but he said, oh, all the research and I don't have the, the yeah. means, I don't have any books. So I'm just going to make it up. Like, what if, what if I create my own, my own world to write historical Pretty much. fiction? In? Yeah. And, and, and what I enjoy so much about that, I could go through the exercise of world building or I could make all of this just sort of real world adjacent where it's like he takes place names and kind of changes one letter. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, like, okay, it's no, no, it's not Zimbabwe. It's Zimbabwe. You're like, oh, okay. But you immediately know what he's talking about and he uses yeah. it to create setting and he uses it to, to as like shorthand for the reader that when he's talking about Stygia or he's talking about Asgard, you know what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, sort of from a from a you know ethnic standpoint or whatever 
Yeah, and, a, a, a cultural standpoint, anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's shorthand. Yeah, yeah, but what's what's so brilliant about it is that. He creates this setting, which is born out of practicality, right? I want something that feels, you know, his, historical-ish. I'll include just enough actual detail for it to feel right, but not enough that I'm going to be held by historians to actual research. It's this incredible notion of the, a hidden age lost to history. It feels so real. And given the stuff he's writing about, it's such an easy entry point. because you can, you can imagine yourself there so readily. That is my single favorite thing about the Conan of. It is so real- while being completely unreal, of course, it feels like it could have happened. And I love the debate about when it is. Like, there's this debate of, like, was it before the last glacial ice age or after? Yeah. Is it 30,000 years ago? <laughs> like, like, it matters, yeah. right? If you have a chance to go back and read through the old issues of Weird Tales, and by the way, folks out there, if you go to archive.org, you can find an entire collection of Weird Tales there free for the taking. There was a pretty robust body of discussion about Howard's work in the letters columns. And as the fans were enthusing about the work, they were hashing out themselves. Oh, wait a minute. How does this all work together? And it was a fan like theory, essentially, that started putting together a rough chronology of, okay, based on what we know from this Conan story and this Conan story, this one must have happened before this one. And they kind of crafted this like rough idea of here's what Conan's life must have been life as pegged by these stories as landmarks. And even Howard was like, I didn't think about it that hard, guys. But it, it was fascinating how much of the lore and canon of Conan was originally generated by just the enthusiasm of fans trying to puzzle out the missing details that Howard purposely kept away from the reader because he knew to include enough that your mind fills in the rest. And it's so evocative that, you know, people just couldn't help themselves. And I think that's a really, really strong testament to the power of this original work, which had been so derided because it was just pulp literature. Howard stood head and shoulders above most of his peers in that in that zone. You know, he was there was like there's Howard, there's everybody else around him. You know, it was, it was there was a bit of that going on. Well, I mean, you did have H.P. Lovecraft. And... Lovecraft and Howard had kind of like a Lewis Tolkien relationship. Yeah, they totally had a bromance, and and yeah. I think their writing is enormously similar. Uh, yeah, uh, Lovecraft being sort of the nth degree of Howard's purple prose. <laughs> Well, you know, the funny thing about the Howard Lovecraft relationship, because they never actually met each other. It was one of these classic correspondence relationships. They knew each other through letters. They corresponded ferociously, hundreds, I mean, just dozens and dozens of letters. But one of their ongoing conversations, and I think it's interesting because it really fuels a major theme of the work in Conan, is the notion of barbarism versus civilization. Howard was of the mind that savagery or barbarism is the natural state of man. And that civilization ultimately is a bad thing. And Lovecraft was exactly the opposite. He's like, no, 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 no. Civilization is the apex of man. Savagery and, and barbarism is what to be, is to be avoided. That's the low point. And they never really resolved that. And they actually would fight bitterly over that. You know, it's kind of like a, a 1930s version of a Facebook argument where you've got a really good buddy and just beat it out hammer and tongs. Then you put it aside afterwards and figure out how to be friends beyond that, right? They had that going on. It's like in Queen of the Black Coast, we get a taste of that right off the bat where he's like, right, Tom, like he's in court. <laughs> They're like, dude, you're going to go to jail. He goes, how about I take your head? What's that? Zam. And it's all <laughs> like, well, wait a minute, you right, know, right down the yeah. Middle. Yeah. like a melon, yeah. <laughs> like, like a melon. When you learn about Howard's upbringing and one of the reasons why Conan works so well is because there's so much of Howard in it. Like Conan 
is very much a, a pastiche of a lot of people Conan knew growing up in all these small towns in Texas. His dad was a was a doctor who traveled around quite a lot, so he had to uproot often. You know, the town they kind of settled in after a while became a Texas oil boomtown and went from this little nowhere crossroads to having like 10,000 people in overnight. Young Howard saw up close and personal all of the rowdiness, the decadence, the sin, the vice, the violence, the corruption that comes with all that. And so when you see Conan railing against civilization, that's Howard railing against what he saw in civilization, what he didn't like about it. You know, And I think that's always a really interesting thing. And you see that again and again in, in Conan and how civilization is not to be trusted. It's ultimately corrupting influence. And Conan is true. Or like his, his savagery, his, his primal nature, you can call it many things. You can't call it dishonest. Conan is a, is a deeply honest character. He, he says what he says. He means what he says. He does what he does. And that's just it. And he's like, I don't have all the use for all these reasons in civilization why you can say something you don't mean, why you can do something you don't say. Like all these weird vagaries, they're just alien to him. And so he's like, wherever I go, it's a maximum truth zone. You know, <laughs> it's kind of fun watching the characters around him recoil from that, you know, but that was, that was very much a Howard thesis. And I think that was uh, one of the deeper things he had to say through Conan. Sure. Though th that said, Conan absolutely loves civilization. I mean, he, oh, yeah, doesn't, sure. he doesn't go back to Samaria very much. Well, he likes a certain yeah. subsector of civilization, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's where the beer and the girls are, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's 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 where it's where his work is, and it's yeah. where I work. <laughs> <laughs> it's my job, man. Yeah, I just I don't love civilization. I just punch a clock. Yeah. Bill, I think you're right. Conan gets set up as like this big, you know, he's the big truth pretty much in his own universe. I mean, that, yeah. that is, you know, he's a king and he's constantly facing threats. You know, his his uh, kingdom, you know, he's deposed for uh, for a time. And at least one story that I can think of, I think it's two, but- um, Hour of the Dragon, certainly he gets deposed, which is yeah. my which is my favorite Conan story. Oh my God, do it's I love so that story. Good. It's so okay, good. He gets back though with, with the sword, you know, it, it's, all, it's just him and his might and his indomitable will. He's like, I'm a very simple king. There are very few rules. I just expect you all to worship me. That's all. You know, like, <laughs> Easy. He would have made the best Green Lantern ever. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Crumb laughs at your yellow ring. <laughs> Blast somebody. <laughs> it's, so it's so fantastic. Um, We've got to get later to the discussion about Crom and like what kind of a deity he is. Crom is honestly the kind more, of a dick. <laughs> yeah, but the more you know, the more I read about Crom, the more I love Crom. I mean, I just like I get it's he's the perfect Sumerian god. Like, here's the deal: one, he doesn't care about you; two, he doesn't listen about you; three, you ultimately get judged by him; and four, if you can't get by without Crom's help, well then. Crom laughs at you from his mouth. And it's what like, good are you? Yeah, but like they like, that's how they like their God. Yeah. They like this distant, like absentee yeah. landlord Completely God. uninterested. I'm asking myself, like, how do you come to worship a deity like that when basically he's a deadbeat dad? Like, <laughs> <laughs> only suckers pray to Crom. <laughs> you know? You're missing the point. Why would you pray to Krom? He's not listening. Like, yeah, there are no priests to Krom. There are no temples to Krom. No, no, just periodically, Conan just goes, Krom, like, damn, yeah. you know? There's, you mentioned, Bill, earlier that, you know, one of the, the guiding themes in Conan is barbarism versus civilization. But that stream of individualism versus community is something else mm. that you see a lot that, that 
yeah. Conan, you know, even when he becomes king, he doesn't have a lot of use for complex human interaction. That's not really his, his jam. <laughs> like he's, no. he's, he's well suited on being by himself. You're pretty much just getting in his way, right? I mean, like I love the one scene, I think it's in Phoenix and the Sword, where the guys come to overthrow him and there's like 20 guys and his guards all run away and he's like, yeah, okay, I'll just kill him all myself. So I mentioned that Hour of the Dragon is my favorite Conan story. King of Aquilonia gets usurped, has to flee, has to figure out, am I going to come back? You know, he, he basically rallies the forces to retake his kingdom, right? So, so like, Conan, like, like, even though he's not sure he really wants to at, at first. And that's that's my favorite part of that. Yeah. Is that is a point where he finally gets away. He's at the point, he's like on the coast. And he's like, okay, like I'm in a place where people don't recognize me as Conan the King. I can just let all the stuff go. I can just, you know what? I've got a sword. I can grab a couple guys. I can beat some heads. Next thing you know, we'll have a mercenary company. We'll be on a ship and we'll be doing what we did in the old days. It'll be great. And and he seriously thinks about it for a second. Then he goes, now, wait a minute. That was mine. That was mine. Nobody takes what's mine. And he turns around and from there on, it is an inexorable walk back to the throne. Nothing stops him. He's like, wait, oh, wait, wait one second. You know, like he gets reminds him, but it's this great just, moment where he's like, wait, wait, he's punk like, slap I, after punk slap. I mean, just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's like, I can do whatever I want, and what I want is mine back. <laughs> it's just this, it's like you guys mess with the wrong fella. Like, here he comes. Like, man, you got a better chance to argue with the weather. I mean, here it's just <laughs> which is why Conan played so well in 80s cinema. Oh my god, which is uh probably a great segue to our next segment. So I know Joe. You want to talk about Conan on the screen. So why don't you talk about your favorite screen iteration and, you know, talk about what's your favorite part from it. And, and, and again, you know, how it kind of speaks to, you know, how you look at Conan as a, as a general thing. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Absolutely. You know, I, you know, my, my exposure to Conan was not unlike Tom's. I saw Conan the Barbarian far earlier in life than I should have. Um, <laughs> and there were a number of firsts for me, I think, cinematic viewing wise and uh, <laughs> some of which some of which involved some of his your his, pants uh, his female friends um <laughs> and, and some of them involved the, just the amount of like you know blood spattering gore that was involved mm-hmm. but i adored conan the barbarian the, the 82 cinematic version i know that you know it, it, there's some camp quality to it a little bit but there's also a lot of talent uh, both behind and in front of the camera a palpable grittiness to it that I think really does a good job of evoking Howard's world building that he had done. It feels mm-hmm. like uh, having now read the Howard stories, I think it actually fits together really well. Uh, yeah. It visually works. And as much as, as Arnold Schwarzenegger had a bag of marbles in his mouth the whole time, he looks like a force of nature. He looks like something that would roll through whatever got in his way. Yeah. And it, it very much plays up that physical part of Conan instead of some of the, you know, Conan as being a little, little more maybe tricky or some of the other things that are part of you know, Yeah, it doesn't yeah. give you the wily yeah. component of it. I love the fact that the story works really well. Um, you know, it takes you from him being a, a, this young kid and he's driven by revenge and he's driven by you know, all this stuff, his father and the riddle of steel and all this other sort of stuff. For me, the, the moment of truth, for me, and there's several of them. I love the part where you know, success can be just as you know, damaging as any adversary and he like passes out into his oatmeal. I've felt that way many, many times in my life and um, not usually because I had just given a girl a you know, gem the size of a hen's egg, but, but for other reasons. Um, yeah. But I love that scene. I, I, I love 
so much about this this movie. The fight scenes feel very real, right? They, they feel yeah. like whoever they had in to choreograph those, it, it doesn't play like movie violence. It plays like it's sloppy. There's people making mistakes and there's, you know, it's... Yeah. But for me, yeah. the, there's the scene near the end when he's setting the ambush for Thulsa Dune and Thulsa Dune's boys after he's gotten the king's daughter back. And she's like, he's going to come for you. And he's like, yeah, let him come, you know? And so he goes into the... Uh, the Valley of the uh, Gods there. And he's, you know, in with the stone plinths with his, with his buddies setting up traps and he's waiting and he has the, you know, major league Joe Boo moment, right? Where he says, you know, Joe Boo, I pray to you, I stand up for you. But he, he starts praying to Krom and he says, you know, I know you don't care. He, everything we just talked about, he goes, look, I know you don't care. You don't remember if there's good men or bad men or what we are. He said, but I think that, you know, valor pleases you that one, you know, few will stand against many. And I think you'll dig that. And he yeah. says, and then he takes this beat and he says, and you know what? And if you don't, and if you don't want to hell with you, I'll do it without you. <laughs> you, know, Krom, <laughs> you know, Conan is such a, a rugged individualist. He doesn't even need his God. He's like, hey, yeah. you know, uh, you know, he said it earlier to, to make to the wizard when he says, you know, are the gods still here? Are they going to help? And he says, no, he's all oh, the heck with them then. You know, like, you yeah. so, I don't need anyone. I just need my sword. I need my steel and my muscles and I'll take, I'll take whoever comes in. And to me, that was such a great insight to the, to the Conan character in that scene. But, but the movie as a whole, I think it still holds up, you know, 30 years later, I think it's still yeah. a fun movie to watch. You know, Joe, I, I rewatched this movie uh, last night. It really does hold up despite those campy elements and the cheese. I think those are, are part of it. I think they, of a, a little bit of it. Yeah. yeah. The gratuitous nudity and it, it's an experience I don't know. A few movies have given me since, honestly. The scene uh, with the uh, the big snake fight, mm-hmm. that could have been so really terrible. <laughs> you never would have wanted to see Conan on the screen again. But it worked. It, they, they really made it work. Yeah. That was, that was a, a, I think, for its time, a brilliant practical effect. They just really nailed. And I think that Basil Polidorus's score... The sound is everything amazing. to this oh, film it is yeah. perfect for the setting yeah we, we talked about that in another episode but it really bears repeating because holy moly i mean the movie stars there's just this opening blast of fanfare it's like yeah. it's like welcome to iboria you're not going to survive the trip <laughs> and then the skin just gets blasted off your skull you're like what you know, it's just it's so it's so like full force here you are and it's like it never really lets up and it's 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 so evocative and just transports you to a different world and yet it's Very heroic effectively. it's heroic on that tone though joe i so i watched the movie again just today and there's an opening scene when you know conan is out in the woods and the veneer raiders start you know they're they're coming through the woods and he's like oh, oh they're coming they play the same heroic music for the bad guys as they do for conan it's like yeah. this is just ass kicking music right. period <laughs> Krom doesn't care who wins right it's like Krom scored the movie <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is this is sword fighting music. It's like, da, da. yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, like, you exactly. know what time it is. It's Who's the hero here? They're all heroes. <laughs> yeah, they're all, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, but I love that. I never caught that before. And I'm like, the music doesn't take sides. It's just, it's but just. And then they, there's, you know, there's that, there's the heroic stuff, but then there's also like the stuff in the temple where it gives it kind of like a, 
you can feel the heat of the temple in the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's yeah. sweating and the filming is so good. Like when the sweat hits the snake's yeah. eye, I've always loved that. But yeah. you, like yeah. the music like makes it feel close and humid. And like, mm-hmm. like that's amazing work. It really is. Hey, oh, wait, Joe. Um, I, I was doing some digging on IMDb uh, yesterday and uh, you'll be pleased to learn if you don't know already that Basil Polidorus was a guest star on three episodes of Star Trek, Patterns of Force, yep. Obsession, and Errand of Mercy. Oh, okay. check that out. That tracks. That's very cool. This motion picture, I feel like it embraced most of the aspects of Conan's character, as diverse as they are. You know, they showed Conan in love as Howard did in The Queen of the Black Coast. With uh, Valeria from Red Nails. Who, yeah. who, you know, Valeria, of course, is like a pastiche. Well, she's been in at least one book as a character, but she's also kind of a pastiche of all of Howard and Conan's badass women. And yet, and yet, I will say Conan does, in the end, he chooses duty and, and revenge over Valeria. Well, you know, when they go in to, to kidnap the king's daughter, Valeria's like, we can do this. Like, skill thieves can do this. And like Conan's sitting there just like sharpening his sword. And she goes, a vengeful thief cannot. <laughs> Conan's like, memo taken and put in the circular filing basket. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> King's like, okay, we're going to thug out. That's how this is going to happen. You know? Right. And she's like, but, okay, I get it. That's and, how it's going to And happen. she yeah, loves exactly. him like Belit loved Conan. Yeah, and, and no, for real. It's a true love. Like, that's in that movie. Like, they really, and, and it's funny because, you get the sense of he mourns her, you know, when he puts her on the funeral pyre and the wizard's like, you know, no fire burns up there. Conan it's like, burns Con- up there. Yeah, yeah, Conan burns up there. Exactly. That was yeah. a great moment. Yes. He lights that fire and it goes up and you're like, oh, man. Yeah. Uh, and that's not Crom's doing. <laughs> that's Conan's doing. It was, it was really cool. I don't like to criticize things in this podcast, but I'm only going to mention this so I can come back and talk about how much I love the original Conan the Barbarian from 82. The body count in Conan the Barbarian, given that it's a Conan story, is actually not as big as you would think it would be, right? And in Conan the Destroyer, lot, lots more guys, like more guys die in the opening fight of Conan the Destroyer than die in the climax of Conan the Barbarian, right? Much more fight going on. The sets are bigger and grander, starts looking a little bit more higher end, right? And then when you get to Conan the Barbarian 2011 with Jason Momoa, that movie actually looks freaking awesome. It's gorgeous. Okay, the costume, it's gorgeous. The, the body count is insane. If gratuitous nudity is something you require to have an authentic Conan experience, well, then that movie <laughs> delivers, okay? Because there are bare-chested women throughout all over the place, right? But the thing is, is that as the movies look better and better, they feel hollower and hollower. They miss this something that makes a Howard story a Howard story, and they get farther away from why that first Conan movie feels so right. Like the other movies look better, but they feel more inaccurate. They feel more distant from the thing that makes these things so so charged. And that's why I like to come. It's, yeah. it's, they're, they're getting civilized. I mean, if you think about yeah, it, like, I think you're right. No, so you're much right. of Howard's thing is barbarism versus civilization. Conan the Barbarian is like they made this thing out in the woods. Right, like it, was it really a, is. They blur yes. witch this thing. It was a guy with a camera. This was like that was that was the equivalent of a billion dollar production for the day. That was a super <laughs> high budget movie. Yeah, I'm just gonna say right now that I'm pretty confident that Arnold Schwarzenegger actually punched out that camel when filming <laughs> this movie. I, I don't think that was a stunt camel. I don't think that was a pull. Po- I think he actually punched the camel out, and they just dealt with the fine that the, the, the that the animal, the humane society levied on him for. Well, I think let's remember too that the screenwriter. I mean, you had Oliver Stone. Was, right? was writing it which 
I remember when I first found that out that it kind of blew my mind a little. Yeah, bit. like five years later, he'd be doing Platoon. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> it's, just kind of, it's just kind of amazing. The thing is, you know, Conan is again he's a character of great mirth among other things. He actually has a sense of humor. And I think Schwarzenegger was perfect for that because, you know, he's not the world's greatest actor. He's one of the more enjoyable actors out there. But, like, nobody has a wide-eyed what-the-hell-just-happened look quite the way, like, Arnie has, right? It's like, what? You know? <laughs> and, and Conan wears that quite a bit during this. Like, when he punches at the camel, when he falls asleep in his oatmeal, these things are also quintessentially Conan. And they kind of get forgotten a lot. And they certainly, you certainly don't see them in the later movies. Later movies, definitely, they focus on Conan's a badass. Conan knows how cool he is. And it's like, you know what? That's that's actually not not as it's, rewarding. It's not as it, fun to watch just untrammeled competence. Like it's like I, right. I, I, yeah, there needs fair, to be a point yeah. of entry, yeah. right? And yeah. I think the other yeah. thing that's hard to forget, and, and there, there are some intangibles and charisma, again, a charisma that Arnold Schwarzenegger, for all of his faults, is a charismatic performer. He's somebody yeah. that oh. when he's on screen, it's really hard to take your eyes off. Even now, like, you know, you circulate a video of him, he does these like political videos from his yeah. Or whatever and he's so yeah. watchable displaying so the watchable. conan sword today displaying the conan sword. yeah he did there's no stories in the original you know weird tales that feature conan in samaria and you know he's stranger in every land that he yeah. visits and he's just visiting other lands yeah. constantly you gotta have somebody who can do that fish out of water kind of like i don't know what's going on here every once in a while like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think that was one of the things that made him. Yeah, yeah, so that, all that. What it is, the fish out of water. Everywhere I haven't even thought about that before. That, that's a great point. I'm willing to go on record, though, to say that I actually think Momoa was a better Conan. Um, I do. He, well, I, he, I will say this. He has more charisma than, than Arnold Schwarzenegger does, which is hard. And and, you know, and he know. he had he had I think I think he he brought Conan's sense of fun to it you know like Momo looked like he was enjoying those fights you know oh no he did yeah no I, I don't think Momo was a bad Conan I think if there had never been Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movies I would have really enjoyed the the Momo one a little bit better although I will say this my biggest problem with the 2011 Conan movie wasn't Jason Momoa it was the fact that it got away from Swords and Sorcery which yeah is always it, was, a, it was a weird well, story it, well yeah because Swords and Sorcery Relative, so it's funny how Michael Moorcock apparently had a big deal in kind of coining the phrase sword and sorcery, and he was doing it because he's like, we need to have something that describes the kind of stuff that Howard was writing, right? Moorcock was a big fan of Howard. He goes, what he did was special, it was unique, and we need to call it out, especially as, as like Tolkien rose in popularity. Like Tolkien and, and Howard were, they're were talking about two very different things. <laughs> and, and, and sword and sorcery, it really, you're getting at a much more personal motivation. The things the character is doing, it's for themselves. It's a very personal thing, a very small scale. Whereas, you know, high fantasy, it's, you know, trying to save the world. It's like that story is all about, you know, they kind of tack on Conan has his own reason for doing things, but it's about saving the world. And that's like, Conan's like, dude, you know what? I got to save my coin purse, man. I got to save my sobriety. Like, like he's, he's like, like, I got to save all kinds of things. The world is not one of them. I got to save is, my place. That in is a absolutely ship. fair. Generally, Conan saves the world, you know, in passing. But he, he does save the yeah. world quite frequently. No, no, yeah, he does never, but not by not by intention. No, and exactly. not aware of, at the time, not, and he not walks to away be a like hero. Well, no, he kills Thulsadun because he killed his parents. He doesn't care about the cult and all these people, right? Like, but, but like you go back to like say um like in in the original Weird Tales story, like the Tower of the Elephant, right? He goes in there and he he comes face to face with this like cosmic horror 
a god imprisoned by man and like all this stuff and he basically unlocks it and and basically puts a stop to this unspeakable clockwork evil that's threatening everything and he's basically like well that was a hell of a thing oh man <laughs> and sort of walks off. his scholars afterwards were like wow i don't know who the sumerian guy is we save the world i wonder if he knows and you know in fact conan don't care okay Conan's already yeah. hammered with some stable slatter in two towns over he's moved on you know <laughs> and the momo movie kind of forgets that i think and i think that was the problem with it and but the the milius movie never forgets that and and i and i love that about that one, one thing i will say too is that you know we do find out as time goes by that schwarzenegger has impeccable comedic timing and he makes a career of <laughs> he does. Uh, of that and the scene one of the scenes He's a that funny I love, guy. one of the scenes i love in, in the 82 movie is when he needs to take the robes so that he can infiltrate the the cult or try to <laughs> the cult. and there's that like there's there's the guy that's like, can I tell? Can I, can I ask you? Is like, are you ashamed the of your body? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. He's like, he's like, I, I'm ashamed of my body. You know, the guy's like, you shouldn't be ashamed. But can we talk over there? You know, it's it's, it's when so no one could see us. When no, when no one could see us. No one can see. When, it's so when the sound, when the sound of a fist punch to the face would not carry so far that someone else could hear it. Yeah. He goes, oh no, we are alone now. Very good, you know. And it's just like, and, and Schwarzenegger plays it so straight that it just yeah, he does. absolutely slays me every time. You know exactly what he's doing. <laughs> he's gonna take this guy out and take his yeah, robes. This scene has one ending. <laughs> you know, you know, though. I, I, I wonder, like, that 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 scene is brilliant, uh, and and it cracked me up. You know, the last time I saw it. But I wonder if Conan really new or like the uh, he's he's naive supposedly so maybe not but i kind of get the sense i kind of get the sense that he was when i watched it he Chris, hasn't been hanging out with pirates well no no, no but you made a good point that like i when i watch it i don't think conan was entirely clued in on what this temple guy was expecting of conan yeah conan was so focused on okay i just need to get you someplace quiet so i can punch you in the face and take your clothing like he wasn't thinking about what the guy wanted from him exactly he was you know and so there's a bit of there's like a mismatch of expectations there and like we know both sides of the story so it's funny to us but like both of them were looking at things differently and i think it was a sly scene it really was, it was and, and that movie is, i need your clothes give them to me well, look, Chris, I think this would be a good time to, to segue to, to your moment of truth, because I know what you were talking about was another iteration of Conan, where there's this robust body of original stuff that springs from Howard, and a lot of it's really quite good. Uh, and I know that's that's where your thing comes from. So can you talk about that? Talk about your favorite iteration of it, talk about what you love from it, and how that, again, helps to open a door for you to a wider appreciation of, of, of all things Conan. You know, Conan, uh, of course, after... Howard died. Conan didn't die. He was taken up by a variety of authors. Um, Lynn Carter, Paul Anderson, Leonard Carpenter, L. Spray DeCamp, maybe most importantly, Roland Green, John Hawking, Bjorn Nyberg, Andrew Offutt, John Maddox Roberts, Harry Turtledove. I mean, these people have really? all written. Yeah. No these way. All Harry Turtledove. Harry Turtledove. That's a Learn something new. That's awesome. Here's and, Anthony actually and, did one and just did that that scene with the pederast outside the temple over and over and over again. Except it was a 12 year old girl. <laughs> True story. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, you know, Elspray de Camp in particular was probably enormously important and maybe the most important of these people. But you know, when I was a, a boy of you know 12 or 13. 
I went to the bookmobile in my when it stopped in my neighborhood, and uh, they had a couple of Conan paperbacks in their fantasy section. And uh, you know, this would have been around the time of Conan the Destroyer's release. So it's it's possible that I, I saw the movie first, but I don't think so. I, I think I read Conan and then saw the movie quickly thereafter. Both of these books were by Robert Jordan at any rate. Uh, one of them was Conan the Invincible, and one of them was Conan the Magnificent, and 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 they're both fantastic. Conan evolved throughout all these different authors. He, he was broadened, you know. He did a lot of different things in, in the hands of of different writers. You know, by the time 1982 rolled around, Tour was ready to probably in support of the Conan the Barbarian film release, release a series of Conan novels that that actually lasted for 20 years. Yeah, it was a huge amount. And, and uh, you know, th- these were writers like Robert Jordan, who was, of course, you know, kind of a fantasy god in his own right. Uh, Steve Perry, Roland Green, Leonard Carpenter, yada, yada. These were two early books in the series and, you know, they're novel length Conan stories. And, you know, to some extent, they're exactly the same book. And, 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 and my sense is to some extent, all of these later, later Conan books are exactly the same book. I mean, what changes is uh, the monster he fights, you know, the human bad guy, whether he's a wizard or a king and the coloration of the wenchy beds. <laughs> they're really fun 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 stories uh my particular uh moment is conan the magnificent uh by robert jordan this came out in may of 1984 so around the time of the time of the film it's a story of, of uh conan and these rubies called the eyes of fire an evil wizard uh who is ruling uh, these hill tribes outside of zamora a brythunian wench and, and it it's just a really fun story where Conan basically slays a dragon, you know, gets the girl, loses the girl, and is fine with that. <laughs> and 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 moves on his way. And and yeah. and that that is that is like the pattern of all these books. You know, that he has this grand adventure, he yeah. he finds this magnificent woman, he defeats this terrible enemy, and then he moves on. <laughs> and, and you know. You know, this James Bond. It, yeah, 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 and and, and it, it's really faithful to to the I think to the to the picaresque nature of of the early Conan stories by Howard. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's all really in line with them. I, I, I don't know. I think what I love most about these later books is how thoroughly the authors buy into Hyboria and oh, that okay. age and that world. They really seem to love inhabiting it, and and they, it seems as though Howard has made it easy for them, you know, yeah. to, to to sort of just live here. I wish I'd had these books when I was a kid, man. Where was the bookmobile? Oh, it never stopped in my neighborhood, <laughs> right. man. I would have killed for a bookmobile. Scholastic book fair. They probably wouldn't carry that kind of. <laughs> no, <game>. probably not. <laughs> I can tell you for a fact, Scholastic book fair never carried anything as awesome as Conan the Magnificent because I would have known because I was a big old junk, <laughs> big old much love for the Scholastic book fair. Okay, but uh, it was not my gateway to Conan. I can tell you that much. I was so excited when you mentioned this book because I knew this book. Um, I couldn't remember the name of it, but I remember the, you know, rather distinctive Boris Vallejo cover of, you know, Conan, sword in hand, 
every muscle on his body is flexed, you know, as only can happen in the Boris Vallejo painting. He's bronzed as hell, uh, you know, facing down this fire-breathing dragon. It was like, it's just so cool. That book was kind of like my one-two punch into Conan because I remember, I remember seeing Conan the Destroyer and right around the same time, I came across this book. I'm like, oh, I got to pick it up. And the thing I liked about it was at that time, the titles give you no bearing whatsoever. On which None. Come before. <laughs> I mean, they are so, it's Conan the badass adjective. Like, who knows, right? You know, it's, it's, it's you just can't tell. triumphant, yeah. the warrior, the but defender. That's the time start, yeah, but that's at that time I was starting to get seriously into fantasy fiction. And I'll tell you what, what really used to chafe me when I go to like, you know, Walden Books is that, I go to buy some fantasy book and there'd be all these series and inevitably they wouldn't have the first book in the series or they wouldn't have the whole series. I'm like, man, I can't get five books into this and not get the, the next one. I mean, for a pre-Amazon age of scarcity, this was a, this was a significant issue, right? right? I, I, you know, but the Conan books were so episodic as the old weird tales were. I mean, people read them regularly, but the stores are meant to be pick up as you go. They weren't necessarily meant to, unless they were serialized. But, you know, they were meant to be, you know, enclosed episodes. And that was kind of the point of Howard. Like, he didn't really care about the chronology of his character. These stories all happen in this happenstance way. And it kind of makes you feel like Conan is eternal, right? You don't have an idea of strictly what A led to B, led to C, led to D. That is absolutely true. Let me share a story. Um, right you know, shortly after I had read Conan the Magnificent, uh, it taught me a word, spore. S P O O R. It's it's uh, it's the crom laughs at your spore. It's the track of an animal, you know, or the scent of an animal. It's you know, you 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 follow an animal's spore if you want to catch it if you're hunting it. And uh, I I used it in a creative writing assignment in eighth grade, and I had this fantastic teacher, and she didn't know this word, and she challenged me on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And I, I don't know. I, I think I think that nothing in my life had ever made me feel smarter than knowing a word that my English teacher didn't. <laughs> and thank you, Conan. <laughs> That's the danger, thank you, though, you illiterate barbarian. <laughs> that, that, is, that is probably that. I got to baffle the teacher yeah. with a word. You're very lucky, though, before. that you weren't pulling it out of Howard because if you were, there was an excellent chance that it wasn't a real word. <laughs> exactly. But, but you know, you know that, that, that is such a marvelous counter, Chris, that story to, again, like, you know, when Conan kind of fell out of favor after Howard died, and it was, it was in part because it was from the pulps, but also in part because it was so popular, it spawned all these pale imitators that weren't anywhere nearly as good as Howard. So a lot of people... The great irony is that Conan got lumped in with its imitators, not that its imitators got f- compared unfavorably to Howard. So the notion just to mention Conan was like, oh, you know, the character is big, dumb and stupid because the writing is big, dumb and stupid because Howard's big, dumb and stupid. Like the whole thing just fell in this weird rabbit hole of no reason to like it for any good reason. So I adore the fact that you got this, you know, Howardian vocab and, and dropped it on your teacher. And by the way, Massive love, massive props out there to all the teachers who are changing lives one day at a time, one student at a time by being awesome to their students. Uh, everybody, everybody out there has benefited massively from that teacher they've had. They all know who it is. That one teacher who who gave a damn and was a lightning rod to you in some way, shape or form and changed your life as a student. That's the nobility of teaching. And Chris, you know, I'm glad you had that teacher. And I'm glad Sorry. you got to, I'm glad you got to give that teacher the gift of Conan. That, that's just, <laughs> oh my God, makes my hair stand up. I love it. 
you know, I just love funny. it. It's funny because you, you talk about, you know, the episodic nature of Bill about, you know, how you could pick one up and not feel like you were missing anything or feel like you needed to, yeah. which increasingly, like as we were reading comics became interconnected, right? Like if you hadn't read the, the previous 20, you'd be lost, right? It was like the soap opera yeah. nature of, of some of that. And think about the great characters that come out of the 20th century. If you really think about some of the, the characters, Conan, James Bond, Indiana Jones, like that's a big piece. It doesn't matter like you could pick up any James Bond movie and it doesn't matter which, you know, what sequence it's in. Or yeah, Indiana really Jones doesn't. movies really, it was like, they're, they're not in order in the movies, the way that they came out. It does, you know, yeah. so they're- Just as long as you have the complete story. I mean, I think Hour of the Dragon was published over five issues, I think of- <laughs> Hour of the Dragon was novelized for quite a if while. If I missed yeah. one of those, I would have been pissed hey, hey, off. Hey, hey, no, you know? I, I hear <laughs> you. I would have had a problem. I would have like, yo, we got to go back down to the five and dime. Why? Because I'm missing Hour of the Dragon four. Yeah, that would have been me, no doubt. <laughs> Oh man, I love those issues. I actually collected those issues. I had to make sure that I got the full arc within the actual uh, physical yeah, copies. Nice. It's just, it gave me nice. such a kick, like thinking, you know, this is something like my grandfather might've picked up at the newsstand if he were into like Pulp Fiction. And, you know, this might be a story he read, you know, like on the train yeah. or, you know, something like yeah. that. Well, you know, it's funny. So Conan the Magnificent is the only Conan novel I have read that wasn't written by Robert E. Howard. But I am so impressed by how many other novels have been produced that are beyond beyond or after Howard, you know, and the amount of material produced to support Conan after Howard's death is exponentially larger than what what Howard himself created. Yes. There's some hacky stuff in there, right? But a lot of it are people who really seriously, like you said, they, they're bought into Hyboria, they're bought into Conan, they bought, they're bought into this kind of storytelling tradition. And in that way, I think Conan is more than a franchise. Conan is a tradition. I'm sure there are literary critics out there who are going to send a strike team to my house to burn it down when I say this, but I would put Conan on the same level as characters like Robin Hood and King Arthur in the sense that the characters themselves permeate with the storyteller and they and they take and there's no one true only version and and Howard Pierce would strongly disagree, but the character takes on this life of its own that threads through multiple writers, through multiple audiences, through multiple treatments. There's a Conan-ness to it that unifies it all. That's exactly what makes him such a great character, I think. He is so eminently graspable. You can yeah. understand Conan. He's yeah. not He's not complicated. He's just awesome. You know? <laughs> <laughs> It's the whole point of like an archetype, right? Of a literary archetype. And um, you have a folk hero, essentially, is yeah. what you have. You have Paul Bunyan. You have, yeah. you know, except he's from a fictional place. If you see how some of the artists, you know, who painted Conan covers, like envisioned him, he's not, you know, this big muscle no. bound. No. He looks like. No. A guy you might run into on the street, maybe he's a little bit taller, a little bit bigger, but he's not, you know, like a bodybuilder. And, you know, that, you know, coming into that Conan after, you know, my introduction to it being the Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. film, like, it's like, yeah. all right, well, I guess, you know, this character has undergone some evolution, yeah. but it all still feels like Conan right. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> the, the, the way that these stories, I think, in the 80s were sort of modernized a little bit and and made accessible you know more accessible in terms of prose and whatnot really kind of led them into the comics uh, well or maybe even came from the comics because of course the uh, marvel had been doing conan since what the early 70s 
Since, yeah, I think, and, I think 1970, actually. I mean, kind of cash cow for Marvel, I, I gather. Oh uh, uh, it, it, it may have kept was. them alive for a while. It, it really did. I kind of hate to say it because it was it was Roy Thomas. His run on Conan was ex- just legendary. You know, I, I would like to think that, you know, somewhere in Valhalla, Roy Thomas and Robert E. Howard bump into each other in the meat hall and they can trade stories about what they both did with Conan. You know, I have to give Thomas credit because I always think of him as the guy who almost got the X-Men canceled. So he's always like on like my permanent <laughs> hit list, like Roy Thomas. But he owned Conan so well. Marvel Comics were just, the, they did so much with Conan for so, so very long. That kind of sags to my moment of truth, which is, Right around like 2000 or so, Marvel lost the Conan license. And Dark Horse Comics picked up the license after like a three-year period. It's like three years, like no no, no Conan comics. Dark Horse is like, oh, yoink, and they grabbed it. They re-kicked off a whole new series. And it was written by Kurt Busiek, who I knew from a spectacular Marvel miniseries called Marvels and from a series in Image Comics called Astro City. And so I knew him as a superhero writer and really liked his stuff quite a lot. I was like, Kurt Busiek's writing Conan while I'm in. It was illustrated by a guy named Kerry Nord, who is just a remarkable, remarkable illustrator. Kerry Nord is just the bomb. He's really fantastic and just has this extraordinarily powerful penciling style. He was fully aware of the Frazetta tradition with Conan and wanted to do something that evoked it but did not ape it. And he nails that perfectly. The, the style he brings to this is very much his own, but you can see little tiny filaments that bring you back to the, how you felt when you saw the Frazetta stuff. Super dynamic, super evocative. But the really cool thing about it is Dave Stewart, the colorist, saw Nord's pencils and he, and he oh convinced Busick and he goes, and he goes, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to color just the pencils. We're not going to ink these pencils because typically in comics, you know, you write the panels, you do the pencils, then somebody else inks it, puts black India ink over the outlines to give it a, a much more def- defined shape. Then the colorist knows what to color. Stuart was like, no, 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 no. We're going to just color right on top of the pencils. And as a result, the artwork has this pure painted, like ancient look to it. And it's, it's really not, neat. it's really neat. It's not watercolor. It's not oil. Like, it's just, it looks like no other comic I've ever seen. And it is so pulsing with life and so vibrant it ha- it captures that howardness of the original stories and Busiek is a fine writer and he comes at this from the point of view of telling Conan's story chronologically so rather than just be bopping around from story to story there's an early chronology that was written up in like the the fan columns of weird tales Busiek takes that and kind of runs with it and creates he creates new stories that bring you up to these landmark stories that Howard did, and then other stories that kind of give you connective tissue between the other stories. Yeah. And so it's a really cool, really really cool progression, and it's super fun because you know I knew Conan as this um, ephemeral character. Like I can't place him in time. I'm never sure at what point in his chronology I'm jumping into. Conan is a purely episodic. This is non-episodic Conan. This is very much, you know, linear Conan. And I really, really loved it. It was so well done. <laughs> you know, I think my moment of truth on this would be this section called, it's a story just called The Legend. And it's the very first story. It takes it from a completely different point of view. It, it's the action begins long after the time of Conan is not just over, but is passed into legend, right? It's almost forgotten from history. It's almost like, You know, it's almost like a nod to those times in real world where people forgot that there was ever Conan stories, right? The son of a distant king from some southern land, like from Shem or Ophir or something, apparently has taken over all of Hyboria 
And he's on this tour of like, you know, basically this area, the areas where Aquilonia would have been like, well, I guess it's part of my empire now. I'll do a tour of this place. God, I hate this place. I can't stand it. And as they are traveling through, he's got this, you know, this wazir with him, right? His, his, his advisor, his, who looks like a straight up, I mean, when you look at him, he's clearly a Howard style sorcerer of some kind. His eyes are like serpentine and glowing green. Uh -huh. He's got this pallid complexion. Obviously the guy's got some design on this dude, but we never even get to it. And as they're traveling, they come across this crypt that's loaded with treasure and has this massive statue toppled over. And it's Conan the King sitting on his throne with his big ax. And this young king is like, whoa, who is that guy? And the wazir is like, eh, it's nobody, whatever. Everybody's a king in those ages. And he's like, no, 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 I want to learn about him. And they discover the Median Chronicles. And the whole framing device of Busick's run is this guy. It's only like the Canterbury Tales. This guy's like, well, wait, hang on. Why don't you tell me another story about Conan, right? He's like, all right, let me get the, cr the scrolls out. And it reads another story about, well, here's the next part and what happened with, with Conan. It's just a really cool way to set the story up and to frame it. It reminds us that of uh, something very important that kind of gets forgotten with Conan, which is that on top of everything else, he was still a mortal man and he lived as mortals do. He was aware of his mortality. He embraced his mortality. He knew his time was finite. And that's why he fought so hard and loved so passionately and laughed so loud. He was deeply mortal, you know, and this drives it home. Like eventually his life ended. We don't know how it ended. Even Howard never knew how it ended. Right. But we know that his Conan's time came to an end and it, it acknowledges that from the very beginning. I thought that it lends an immediacy and it uh, to everything Conan did. Right. My favorite part about this, my moment of truth in, in the legend is, you know, finally the wazirs, you know, you, you know, he, he's being berated by his king. He's like, look, like I gave you the orders, read me the scrolls. I want to find out what happened to Conan. It's like, well, he's like, you know, it's still superstitious nonsense, but in keeping with your wishes, I had the scribes prepare an account. This is based on what we've uncovered about this Conan thus far. And he opens it up and he goes, no, oh, prince, that between the years, da, 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 da. and he goes into the monologue and it's so well done. And in the next eight pages that follow, it is an absolute masterclass where Busick and Nord are just sort of dancing around each other and they're using this spare amount of text in this hundred words or so. They're going to give you a crash course in what is Hyboria and who is Conan. And it is lavishly illustrated as you go through and you talked about, you know, an age undreamt of, and there are these, you know, triremes and these, these cool, you know, you know, ancient ships and, you know, kingdoms lay spread across the world. You see these ancient hazy domed cities against, you know, sepia skies, you know, Nemedia, Ophir, Barthunia, and you see, you know, the smoky hills of the Northern country. You see the spider haunted mystery of Zamora and the tower of the elephant, you know, you see Zungar with this civil, this chivalry, and these two guys just fencing in this weird court. Like, what's their story? It's just fantastic. And you know, every every image, every little fragment brings forth another image of another snapshot. You know, what life is like elsewhere in Hyboria. The the horse riders are caught. This cultist in Stygia sacrificing this this poor young woman. These Hyrcanian cavalrymen just coming at you full bore. You know, the column of soldiers coming out of Aquilonia. And just the sun, the golden sun shining on Aquilonia just to suggest its, its, its magnificence. And then here comes Conan. He's a shadow. And he comes out of the darkness on his horse and his eyes burn like sapphire. It's, you know, he's just like, you know, his eyes look right through you from the page. And he goes right into him just hewing his way through a crowd of bad guys, right? He's half naked climbing up the Tower of the Elephant. He's carrying plunder over his shoulder. He's taking some guy's head off effortlessly, you know. It talks about his gigantic melancholies. And there's a picture that if you're in the know, 
you know, it's from the end of Queen of the Black Coast, where he's on a coast looking at the ship burning in the water. Like, what is that about? But like, oh man, you know, and and gigantic Murph. And there's this great picture of him just at a tavern. There's this like dancing girl it. who's like, and she's like banging her hips towards the camera, and he's just like, oh yeah. And there's the guys like flagons are clinking and there's ale sloshing. It's just, it's just, it captures so much. And he talks about treading, you know, the you know the jeweled thrones of the earth, and how he captures the head of the Lord of, of Namedia, I, you know, and, and and just throws down the steps, and and how it just goes into this final image of an armored Conan on the battlefield in imperial array, taking his forces out to conquer what part of the world he can, and it's it's eight pages long, and there are entire graphic novels I have read that have not given me so much story and that have not captured so much of my imaginative landscape as these eight pages do i go and as you read the dark horse trade paperbacks they often open each one with the O prince monologue once again and i never tire of rereading it it is just such a great crash course and everything i love about conan everything i love about howard and everything i love about the tradition of figuring out what works so well about this and carrying it forward in a way that honors the original but brings something new to it that is worthy of of judgment on its own those pages really are fantastic and and so are these comics it's a shame that Busek didn't stay with it because well i, I won't say it got bad later I, i've read i've read uh i don't know about nine volumes of that run i've enjoyed them all but the, yeah. the quality is uneven so the trade paperbacks are a little interesting because they don't follow the exact order of the issues that they came from, right? So I've never actually read the issues. I just read the trade paperbacks, and they tend to collect things in a more kind of chapterized format. But near the end of Busick's run, there's a great story by Mike Mignola of Hellboy fame uh, where he does Halls of the Dead. And that's a classic where they take a fragment, an unpublished fragment of a story that Howard never finished. And like, well, here's the gist he was going for. Let's make this happen. And it's really good. It's really a lot of fun. Industry legend Timothy Truman takes over after Busick kind of leaves. And Truman's awesome. And I've read some of his stuff on Conan and it was quite fun, but I haven't gone too much deeper into it. But the the Busick-Nord pairing, um, you know, when you get when you get writers and artists and colorists and whatnot who really click together, it's like, you know, like it's, it's like a band. Like Tom, you've, you've, you you know music. I mean, it's, it's, it's that kind of that kind of magic when they come together. And that magic is evident in these comics. It's not just good Conan it's just good comics and oh good comics and good Conan together are like just love it yeah you guys are more connoisseurs of comic book art in general I I feel like but uh, like I don't even really follow like individual artists the way you guys do but you know I will say that like some of the most beautiful comic book art that I have seen has been you know in issues of Conan I, I I I remember just being blown away, you know, when I was sick that one time and those dead and my dad plopped those two issues of Savage Sword. I mean, the covers on those things were just like, like nothing yeah. I'd ever seen. Like I was literally stunned, but like, you know, since then that's, you know, I've gone through and read like a bunch of the comics, like, I don't know what it is about this genre, maybe, I, you know, but like, it just, it brings alive, I think, a lot of the artists who, who you know, yeah. who put this stuff yeah. out. And, and it's just really like a chance for them to showcase mm-hmm. their skill. And it just it's so immersive yeah. and it's, it's immersive yeah. in a way that I think isn't, you know, that, that other comic books can't match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. The superhero comic books never feel as real as Conan comics. No, Conan. I think gives you license to really just tap into something elemental, whether you're a writer or whether you're an artist, you get to go straight to the source of something. And or a 13 so, year old boy. 
Well, I, mean, I think, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, or a 50 year old boy, you know, like myself, uh, but, but, but I think, you know, with comics, especially given that you're fighting with swords and there's bloodshed, and there's wenching and all that. A lot of those comics, apart from things like say Savage Sword of Conan, which is a magazine and therefore got around the comic code authority and, and could essentially be uncensored. I mean, dude, Marvel published like close to 300 issues of Conan, all in accordance with the Comic Code Authority. So they couldn't go full, you know, full Conan, but they were able to tap into something that felt right. They captured that life and that energy and that fire. And I think that's the mission of Conan, you know, that everything else is kind of a detail. As long as, as, long as the feel is right, you can do almost anything with Conan. You know, and I, I almost hate to say this, but I, I do think that in some ways, comics are the ultimate Conan medium. It has a little bit to do with the sexuality of it. The novels don't don't show us how beautiful Bailey is, for example, or, yeah. you know. You have a great description, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, but simultaneously lithe and voluptuous. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Type that into your favorite search engine. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, I, I don't know how to approach it uh, entirely because it, it feels prurient in a lot of ways. And yet it's so elemental and, and human and real. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, I, I believe Conan, you know, like, like yeah. I... I I believe how he moves from relationship to relationship and, and yeah. how you know, he treats women yeah. somehow. I, like, like it, it seems real to me and- Reminds me in some ways of the, the Dracula comics and the vampire comics. And the, like that when you, there's enough of an element of the supernatural that it takes you like yeah. reality adjacent. It's like in a superhero comic, you can't have Captain America and Spider-Man running around and then, you know, Mary Jane's in a negligee drawn just a little too precisely because it just would be jarring, uh, leaving alone yeah. audience issues. But then like for like the- But we can do the White Queen. Okay. You're talking to a guy that was like, you know, about as good as it got in the mid to late 80s. Sexual yeah, awakening right? stuff, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, the, the reason I bring in the Dracula is because that a lot of the art to me felt the same when I was younger, when I would read them, that, that there was this, yeah. it was just a little bit more mature, but it was also just a little bit more, um, yeah. more visceral, more, more sensual. And, and, and there's yeah. a, I think we, we talked earlier on about Howard's prose and how tactile it is that having artwork yeah. that doesn't pull punches, that it's, you know, it is beyond comics code and, and that might be violence. It might be the sexuality component. I don't think you can yeah. do Conan without that. Yeah, and no, I totally agree. And you know, oh, you can't. There's some Conan comics I've been reading lately by a publisher called Ablaze, and I'm not going to get into the whole complicated copyright elements that surround Conan. But they're a separate company that are doing their own comics, and they're basically they're doing their own versions of classic weird tale stories. So they're doing Queen of the Black Coast, Red Nails, Frost Giant's Daughter, that sort of thing. And they're a lot of fun. I really quite like them. The art is quite good. But the art is very, um, it's very conventional comic book type stuff. It's a lot of it looks kind of European, and folks who are familiar with European comics or read like a lot of heavy metal magazine will know what I'm talking about. And so it's good, but it's very precise. Again, the thing I'm going to come back to with Nord and Stewart's artwork and Conan or Dark Horse is that 
the lines are never super because it, they're not inked. They're not super dark and crisp and clear. So everything is kind of soft. Everything almost looks a touch out of focus. If you know, and so gauzy. everything looks like it might always be yeah. gauzy, but it might always be moving. Mm. And so there's a tactility to it. You might there's a sensuousness to it when Conan Agreed. springs into action. It's like it's so alive. When you see his latest, you know, strumpet he's hanging out with, and she's just hanging out in these like you know really filmy garments that just cling to her. Like, you know, I've seen plenty of that stuff in like, say, other image comics, right? Where like, they're just like, hey, let's see how close we can get to, you know, showing whatever we're going to show. It feels different in this because it's just like, it's just an incidental detail and they don't dwell upon it. It just happens. And it's so, it's the whole world is like this. Everybody is kind of half dressed, but the yeah. camera never lingers on it. It just happens. It's hard to say just in, in, in words how great the artwork is. I mean, I encourage everybody out there to go take a look at Busick and Nord's uh, run on, on Conan from Dark Horse. It starts with the Frost Giant's daughter and other stories and moves on from there, but just fantastic stuff. It's really beautiful. And, uh, and just the, the legend alone is just one of the most marvelous pieces of visual storytelling I've ever come across. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I'll never stop loving it. So we've gone on for quite a while and I can hear Crom laughing at us. So before we wrap up, a final thought. In addition to his remarkable volume of stories, Howard also wrote poetry. Though he sussed out pretty early on in his career that he was never going to make much of a living at it. So instead he focused on selling stories to the pulps. But among his verses is a poem he wrote in February 1932, some 10 months before he ever published his first Conan story. Entitled Samaria and published posthumously in 1965, it was written to evoke Howard's memory of the hills surrounding Fredericksburg, Texas, uh, as seen through a rainy, wintry mist. It's a piece that evokes place, but also evokes a state of mind. Howard's ode to this bleak imaginary domain also comments on the landscape of any place when its creative inhabitant sees only a prison of heritage and circumstance, uh, a world of finite possibilities when beyond the horizon lies a whole world of possibility and adventure. One imagines it might be how young Conan himself saw his homeland before taking his first steps into a wider world, sword in hand, with any number of horrors and wonders yet to behold. It's uh, I don't do poetry very much, but I do this one and I, I quite love it. This is Samaria by Robert E. Howard. I remember the dark woods masking slopes of somber hills, the gray clouds leaden everlasting arch, the dusky streams that flowed without a sound and the lone winds that whispered down the passes. Vista on vista, marching hills on hills, slope beyond slope, each dark with sullen trees, our gaunt land lay. So when a man climbed up a rugged peak and gazed, his shaded eye saw but the endless vista, hill on hill, slope beyond slope, each hooded like its brothers. It was a gloomy land that seemed to hold all winds and clouds and dreams that shunned the sun, with bare boughs rattling in the lonesome winds and the dark woodlands brooding over all, not even lightened by the rare dim sun which made squat shadows out of men. They called it Samaria, land of darkness and deep night. It was so long ago and far away, I have forgot the very name men called me. The axe and flint-tipped spear are like a dream, and hunts and wars are shadows. I recall only the stillness of that somber land, the clouds that piled forever on the hills, the dimness of the everlasting woods, Samaria, land of darkness and the night. O oh, soul of mine, born out of shadowed hills to clouds and winds and ghosts that shun the sun, 
How many deaths shall serve to break at last this heritage which, which wraps me in the gray apparel of ghosts? I search my heart and find Samaria, land of darkness and the night. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Joe, Tom, and Chris, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. It did take it away from me a little bit when she wound up with Cyclops because that took like a ton of her sexiness away. Oh, here we go. <laughs> We're not doing this as episode. We're not doing it. Cyclops <laughs> I so totally agree. Right, I'm going to need you to take out any references to slagging Cyclops. Yeah, right? Seriously, this is going on. The, the anti-Cyclopsism here is going on the cutting room floor. I'm just going to say this for the record right now.